The sponsor for The Shepherd's Crook for the month of February is the Banner of Truth Trust. The Banner of Truth is a Christian organization which promotes books, organizes conferences, and publishes a monthly magazine. The objective of the banner is the promotion, advancement, and dissemination of a better knowledge and understanding of the history and the doctrines of the true biblical Christian faith. We seek to inform, encourage, strengthen, and equip ordinary Christians and have a particular concern for ministers and pastors and those who are training for the ministry. We also seek to produce material that's evangelistic and in God's providence may be used as a means to bring people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. To read more about their history and mission, you can go and visit thebanneroftruth.org. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor. Come alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. It's a great joy today to be able to interview a friend of mine, Pastor Lane Harrison. Lane, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Jared. Good deal. Great to well, be with you today. Absolutely. Great to have you. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you for the technology that makes things like this uh, just fun to do and makes it even possible to do. So we just thank you and ask that this conversation would be, well, just helpful. It would be encouraging to the people who are listening. I pray for the guys that are listening that they would uh, be challenged. And uh, we just thank you for Lane's life and what you've done in and through him, what you continue to do. Lead this discussion. I trust you will. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Lane, for those who don't know you, would you kind of just give an overview of a little bit about who you are, tell us about your family, and then what it is that you currently do? Yeah. Uh, I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad uh, has been a Southern Baptist pastor for over 60 years. And um, so, you know, I had a great home life. Mother and dad loved each other. And, uh, I have an older brother and an older sister, and we're pretty much a family of ministers. Um, I went to a college at Washita Baptist University in Arkansas, and then from there went to Southwestern Seminary. I got out, went into the pastorate, and had really wrestled with the call to plant a church, uh, but God kind of put that on the back burner for about nine years. We've been living in um, Springfield, Missouri for five when he called us to launch out and plant LifePoint. So my wife and I, Kristen, uh, we've been married to be 27 years this summer, and um, we met in college. We have two children. Joshua, our son, is 21. He is a junior at Tulsa University studying chemical engineering, and our daughter, Bethany, is 18. She's graduating high school this year and uh, is going to change the world by dealing with mm-hmm. people. So um, we, we love them. We've been... Um, here at Life Point now for over 15 years. Um, didn't know if we were always going to make it, but uh, the Lord by his grace has sustained us to this point. And uh, we, we love the people here. We love where we live. We uh, just, I mean, our life is, is far beyond what we would could have ever dreamed and deserved. So um, we love the work in the ministry that he's given us here. Fantastic. And for a lot of people don't know this, the Ozarks and, and kind of where you're at, not, I mean, I mean, even where you're at, it's really beautiful there. I mean, we, we visit there a couple of times a year and I mean, it's stunning. And I think people who've not visited the Midwest and Table Rock Lake and Lake yeah. of the Ozarks, I mean, it's incredible there. So you, you live in a really pretty place. I agree, but I am biased. So. <laughs> 
All right. So you, so you grew up in this ministry family and you go, you go off to college and then you, you get into, you go into seminary and it sounded like you said you went right into pastoral ministry after that. Explain mm-hmm. the process then of, of what it was. So you were converted young, I'm assuming. What was the path into ministry, like that internal call and the external process to get there? You know, I really wasn't converted young, just to be quite okay. honest with you. I was 16 when I became a Christian. Okay. Uh, I made a decision at the age of six, but, um, and, and again, to no fault of my parents, um, the way I describe my growing up years was I, I was just very rebellious. I was a third mm. child and um, I pretty much wanted my way and demanded that. Uh, so I've always kind of held that propensity. Um, so at the age of 16, the Lord really broke my heart. Uh, I knew a lot about God and was very comfortable around the church, but uh, just didn't have a relationship with him. And so uh, in the middle of the night, about 3 a.m., after a number of hours of just kind of crying out to God, trying to figure out what was going on. Um, he brought me to a point of salvation. And mm-hmm. uh, that's a, a moment that I, I'll never forget. It's marked my life. So that was at the age of 16. So much had happened spiritually in my life, even prior to that time, to get me to that point. Um, but in terms of my call, um, I was a freshman in college. Um, I wanted, I was a vocal performance major. And I, I honestly wanted to tour and sing. I wanted to be mm. on stage and perform. I didn't care if it was Christian music or what. I just wanted to perform. And uh, the Lord really broke me through that. I had a couple of really rough years of college, the first two years. I say rough, rough academically, okay. very enjoyable socially. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it really wasn't until my third year that uh, God broke me down. Through my sophomore year of college, I was a student minister at a church. Um, you know, I was teaching the Bible and uh, loving on kids. And the Lord just really used that to lead me into pastoral ministry. It was something I never wanted to do. Um, I'd seen my father do it. Uh, I had the utmost respect for him, but I didn't want that for myself. So God kind of had to backdoor me, if you will. Hmm. Uh, but when I was 19, that uh, about a year into that uh, ministry, I continued on at that church during the school year, and um, the Lord just really broke my heart for pastoral ministry, and uh, that's when I surrendered to preach uh, about, oh, I don't know, uh, nine or ten months after I started that work there, and so he called me to ministry. Uh, that next year, I changed my major for about the fifth time uh, to biblical studies. And from there, my path became very clear. It's like mm. the Lord turned something on. I cared about my grades. I cared about school. I cared about what I was studying and reading. And um, from there, I just kind of moved forward. Yeah. And so then after that, did you have pastors come along? I mean, you had your family. Uh, did you have mentors that came along and helped you along the way as well? Yeah, that first pastor that I served under, uh, his name was Gerald Perry, and a longtime family friend. He had been the pastor at my grandparents' church years before, uh, and so I'd known him all my life. Um, So, you know, obviously my dad and my mom have been the most significant influence, but he was a significant influence. He saw a lot in me that I didn't see in myself, and Mm -hmm. he was kind of a, he was a man's man, and uh, he said, you know, I I want you to come. He wasn't worried about... um, a lot of the things that I think a lot of people would be worried about in me, but rather he saw a lot in me and took me under his wing 
and um, gave me a lot of opportunity. From that time, I've had a couple of other significant pastors, some that I served under, but others that were walking alongside me that have really mentored me, that are older than me, that I've sought out as well. Wonderful. Okay. So you planted a church before planting was cool, or right <laughs> right when it was, was coming into, I, I guess, a lot of these youth pastors or people were New yeah. planting networks were, were popping up everywhere. And I, I think it was a culmination of, of boomers getting a little bit older and these young guys not having elbow room to be able to, to lead. And, but you, 15 years now, you're 15 years into life point. Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We really started the work in spring of 2003. So, or I'll put it like this. The Lord started the work in our hearts in 2003 and it took us about a year um, to really formulate that into forward movement okay, uh, just through seasons of prayer and that kind of thing. But yeah, you know, when we first sensed a call, honestly, I sensed a call to plant a church in the fall of 1994 when I first went to seminary. I had Roy Fish in personal evangelism. He was talking about church planting. I'd never heard of that before. Right. And I was like, man, I want to do that. And when I first told my wife, she thought we were about to move to Alaska, you know, <laughs> uh, she was scared to death. And, and I said, no, I don't think so. But it, it was nine years later. Huh. And I'd really put the call away because I'd tried to talk to denominational leaders and pastors. And they pretty much patted me on the back and said, good luck. And mm. I, I don't think they did that intentionally, but nobody was talking about it. Rick Warren was the only one that, was really publicly talking about it that I had access to through his book, you know, and so uh, I didn't know where to go, had no idea what to do. And uh, so when we finally, in October of 03, when we finally surrendered to plant a church, uh, we were making plans to pack the house up. We thought the Lord was going to lead us overseas. Hmm. Uh, and so we were going to start application for international work and through a turn of events and, and just a season of prayer, God said, no, you're not going anywhere. You're going to stay right here in Ozark and plant a church here. Hmm. Man, that's great. Now, all right, fast forward several years, you planted, now you got your family, you got your two two kids, and your daughter now is about to about to leave and uh, and move on. Or she going to be staying at the house while she's going to school? Yeah, she'll she... probably go local the first couple of years. That's what she's thinking she wants to do. And okay. um, so she'll probably stay at home. Okay. All right, two-part question. So in, in the years that your children were growing up, how did you maintain priorities to make sure that you know your focus was rightly on your family, that your household was managed well, and in, in light of all that's going on with church planting and, and pastoral life? So how do you maintain that those priorities? And then secondly, you know, how, how are you doing now that you're, you know, this, this empty nest idea that's now for you and your wife in your head, and you're thinking about mm -hmm. it, just looking at it, how you guys been doing to you know, have you, are you prepared for your children to leave and for you to look at your wife and still know each other well, you know, and be prepared for them to leave? So two part, what do you do to keep priorities? What have you done to prepare for empty nest? Yeah, uh, I'll tell you, I can answer both of those with the same answer. Uh, and okay. I'll explain a little bit. I married way above my level in my wife. <laughs> um, awesome. I, so two things. Number one, um, my wife has been so much of the anchor through all of that. She's made a deep commitment. She has her own call to the ministry that we do. And it's not, it's a call very much to come alongside. And, and so when we started planting the church, she's an, 
uh, by education and training and experience. She's an elementary uh, school teacher, but she was not teaching at the time. And when we began to plant, we made a decision that first year leading into that first year that we would homeschool so that we could travel during the week if we wanted to go see family. All of our family at that time was six to 10 hours away. So very removed from us. So we needed to have the freedom to go travel and see them if we wanted to during the week. But I felt like I wanted to be here on the weekends so I could give my principal investment in the church. Uh, early on, I wish I could say I did everything perfect. Uh, that would be the biggest lie if I did. Um, I probably tend towards workaholism to a large extent. Um, I am very passionate and driven and motivated towards that drivenness. And so um, I probably didn't spend enough time at home in the early years as I should have. But uh, the church was very accessible to the house. I officed out of the house. Okay. So in one sense, I would say I didn't spend enough time at home. In another sense, I would say I brought too much of it in the home, uh, but there was no other choice. We didn't have mm-hmm. a place to office. We, you know, right. we, we operated with the resources that were at our disposal. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of family time on the fly in the early years. Uh, my wife maintained a lot of stability in the home. Uh, but we've always had a very strong relationship in terms of, you know, uh, budgeting, uh, starting that early uh, in our marriage, uh, our relationship. Obviously, we've had some struggles through the years in sense of just hard times that we've had to work together. But by God's grace, um, those are always times that uh, strengthened our relationship and mm-hmm. didn't drive a wedge through it. And I think that was from early on, just some of the things we went through uh, as a married couple that taught us those lessons. I I wasn't a spring chicken when I planted, I was 34 and I had 15 years of pastoral ministry experience. Hmm. Uh, So it's not like I jumped into ministry and went right to a church plant. Uh, When we planted the church, I had a very definitive image of what the church was supposed to be a very, what I would call developed um, ecclesiology that I wanted to pursue and how that would come about. And so I set about trying to put that on paper and uh, helping the church to formulate from that. But, um, you know, in the early days, uh, it was hard. The first three, three and a half years are very difficult. I reached a point about three and a half years in where uh, I just felt completely inadequate and unprepared. And I think what happened was, uh, and I didn't have the vocabulary for this at the time, but I think I just reached a, a point physically emotionally and spiritually that I was kind of spent, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I had to retool. I had to figure out what was going on with me. And I've learned about every three to five years, that's been a process I've gone through over the last 15 years um, where I have to actually retool what I'm assigning my energies to in the church and being able to then spread the load, you know, to other staff members. and, And as the church has developed and allowed me to do that, now, I think, you know, Kristen and I are at a place where we're excited about the future. We're excited about ministry here. Uh, the last three years of three to four years of our ministry here have, have been very challenging for us personally, as well as pastorally. And we didn't know, quite frankly, if we were going to be here. Hmm. That's something I've talked to our leadership about repeatedly. Wow. Um, but, uh, you know, just through that kind of openness and them praying for us and uh, the Lord has been very gracious and through a couple of opportunities that have come our way 
to consider other uh, organizational or pastoral leadership positions. The Lord's made it very clear we're not going anywhere. Hmm. And so we're excited about that. Um, we Fantastic. love our kids, man. We are so excited about how God's leading them. They love the Lord. They serve him. Um, they're not ashamed of their witness for him. And so we're so proud of them. We know that's by his grace. It, it's not because we're phenomenal parents. It's because, you know, uh, they love the Lord. And so we're excited yeah. about their future and ours as well. Uh, as a married couple, I think we're stronger than ever. Yeah, we've had to face the issue of, okay, as a empty nesters, what's next for us? And mm -hmm. what does our relationship look like? But I don't think that was an awakening to we didn't have a relationship. I think it's an awakening to we're looking at a new stage of life. What's it going yeah. to look like? So let's Thanks. make some plans and move into it. Fantastic. Man, that's that's cool. Well, I was hoping you're going to say you got this uh, parenting thing all figured out. And if we were just to do five things, we could ensure great kids. But <laughs> <laughs> I guess if you knew that, you would have I already don't. written the book. <laughs> I would say this. Love Jesus tomorrow more than you did today. Amen. And make sure you're doing the same with your wife. You know, that's, that's um, so good. That's so good. We're on the front end of this. My son is my sons are five and just turned two. Yeah. So we're having a lot of fun in the early years and it's, it's been, it's been a really good time. My son, just my youngest just turned two, three days ago. So they're four days ago now. And he's pretty great. They're, they're, we're looking forward to going hunting, hunting with me, Nick, or that's they call, they, they don't say the hunting, they say hunting. So we're going to go hunting. Uh, that's right. Well, that's the correct pronunciation. That's the right way. Right. I got to get rid of hunting out of my language, out of my vocabulary. Okay. Uh, so not just in, in a large national level with big moral failures from pastors anecdotally and locally I've witnessed and walked with guys who have struggled and morally mm -hmm. failed and are in my office uh, and I'm working with them counseling them afterwards and then just in my experience locally I've seen one pastor finish ministry well he's about 30 one of my mentors he's almost 70 now and he he finished well he didn't have any massive uh, secret moral failures he and his wife still love each other. He still loves Jesus. He still knows he's loved by Jesus. And it may be anecdotally differently, you know, different for you there and what your experience is. But Lane, why, why do pastors burn out and why is moral failure seem like a, a regular occurrence? Why are pastors not finishing well? Yeah. Well, uh, I think the first part of that is just the obvious because they're just men. They're just people and they have mm. the same temptations of any man and any person. And uh, so I, I think that's one major reason. I think on top of that, uh, the larger scale that I would, I don't know if I would, it's a layer I would put on that or what. I think with the breakdown of the family over the last two generations, uh, the way I've described it is we have to teach men to be men before we can teach them to be godly men. That mm. We've lost the definition and the understanding of what it means to be masculine. And um, men grow up in families where they have zero model of what it means to be a man. And they don't know if the next step they're taking is right or wrong. So much of my life is intuitive for two reasons. As a man, because I had so many godly men around me, I don't even think about what it means to be a man. I have to stop and really mm. process through that. You know, okay, well, I yeah. I knew my great-grandfather. I had grandfathers and uncles and my dad, my brother, and, and other men who mentored me. But then as pastors, uh, you know, there, how many pastors from the last two generations 
have fizzled. Um, and, and then specifically, uh, we seem to celebrate and glorify the fizzling more than the persevering. Mm. Uh, you know, wow. this is one thing that really drives me nuts is uh, we'll give more bandwidth of time to a guy to talk about how and what he was doing and how he fizzled and how he fell morally. Whereas if you take a guy, you know, that served in a, what most would consider a very mediocre church uh, for 30 plus years, how many mm. of those can you list? Yeah. Not very many because they don't get bandwidth. They don't get mm-hmm. time. Nobody wants to interview them. It's not a big story that gets a lot of clicks. And I, I think that's the thing that really, um, most disturbs me uh, is that we're not celebrating these guys that a nobody knows and uh, to ask them, how have you sustained your life? And, you know, I, I think one of the things that that's going to be most detrimental to um, pardon me for the use of the word, and I don't mean it derogatorily, but to this millennial generation is two things. Number one, there's not a lot of older pastors for them to look to, to model, mm-hmm. but number two, there's not a hunger among them that's causing them to seek that out. Yeah, that's um, good. I'm not saying there's not a hunger because there is a hunger for them to be mentored, but usually they're looking at a peer to be their mentor. Mm-hmm. And if they don't get out of that, they're going to fall in the same hole together. Yeah. So that that's probably my greatest concern. Yeah, that's good. And I've, I've encouraged guys that are around my, so I'm 36. And so guys that are around my age, I think there's two things that's going to happen as they get older. One, we're going to be in the same spot as a lot of baby boomer pastors financially yeah. and actually a worse spot. So in 30 years, if we've not purchased a house by the time we're 35, if we're not marching into retirement, actually fiscally responsible for the last 30 years, right? then we're going to be in a just a big trouble where we have to hold on to a position. And the consequence of that is the same sort of feelings that younger guys have gotten over the years from these baby, and not all baby boomers, but a lot of baby boomer pastors where we felt like we were stiff armed. We're going to be repeating the exact same mistakes and we're going to be stiff arming younger generations. That's why I think that the next massive wave of church planting is going to be happening when millennials are in their millennial pastors are in their fifties and sixties, and they're going to be stiff arming young leaders because they're nervous. And these young leaders are going to be, okay, well, we're going to go plant a church. There's no, there's no room for me here. So I'm going to go right. plant a church somewhere. And, um, and yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think millennials have been doing a lot of peer to peer to peer. And, uh, and so they, that's insightful. It's good stuff. Well, I- I'll say this too, Jared, you know, um, so my father, who is really obviously only one generation ahead of me, but he's kind of at the front end of the baby booner generation. I'm at the front end of the Gen X generation. So I was born in 69. So I'm in the first few years of Gen X. Um, The way that pastoral ministry and churches talk about retirement has shifted in my generation. Hmm. So really mine is the first generation. I think that as a whole, uh, we've talked about retirement. Um, We've talked about the church, you know, uh, there were parsonages and the church mm-hmm. just, you know, guys didn't think about retirement. They were going to preach till they died. And mm-hmm. while I still think that's a very viable um, practice at the same time, retirement is a reality, not to check out a ministry, but to shift the way you're able to support yourself in ministry. Right. And I think that's an ever more, ever increasing important topic because two reasons, number one, the millennial generation 
isn't saving and mm-hmm. they're neck deep in debt. Yep. And that's going to bite them at a time when it's too late to do anything about it. So mm-hmm. that's critically important. But the way churches uh, compensate pastors has shifted in my generation. Uh, and by God's grace, my dad always told me, he said, don't live in a parsonage. Uh, mm-hmm. Buy your house, yep. invest. You know, absolutely. He did it because he said, "I want the church to know I'm committed to this place." Mm-hmm. Uh, but and so that you know, he didn't do it to build a big nest egg. But I've seen that shift in my lifetime significantly among churches and pastors, and that's a critical shift for them to continue to make. Mm. Yeah, that's good. I'm going to plug a book because you mentioned that the guy that's been faithfully preaching and pastoring and loving his wife and kids and for years didn't get play. I'm sure you've, have you read this book, the, the memoirs of an ordinary pastor, D.A. Carson's about his father or heard about I it? I have, I've skimmed it. I have not read the full okay. book. At the end of that, if you just want to ball your eyes out, I'll tell you what, it'll, <laughs> it's, mm. it's, uh, it's pretty incredible. At the end, he talks about how his father dies alone in a hospital room. And he talks about, there was no uh, articles in the newspaper. There was nobody there celebrating his life and accomplishments. And then he, flips it. And he said, but on the other side, the host of heaven celebrating. And yeah. it, it, it was so powerful, the, the, the contrast. And just to plug a book that would be really good for, for guys to, to go and get would be the memoirs of an ordinary pastor, D.A. Carson, about his dad. Um, all right. That's a let's, great resource, Jared. Absolutely. Let's, let's shift a little bit. I want to talk hunting a little bit. I just got in, okay. just got in to hunting. I know that you I just got into hunting. Sorry, I got to get that again out of my language. Uh, just got into hunting this last year. I grew up in the country, Southern Illinois. Go, grew up going to my grandpa's farm. Uh, although I grew up in town, I spent a lot of time in the woods. Grew up around guns, shot guns when I was a kid. Never went hunting at all. My dad was not a hunter. And then we'd fish here and there. But just started fishing a lot last year. And then for some reason, we got a guy at our church in his 60s. And he said, hey, why don't you come? You can come to my property. It's got 85 acres. He said, why don't you just come? I've got a spot for you. I've got a deer stand open. Go to your safety course and let's Excellent. go hunting. And I, Lane, I loved it. It was like I'd sit yeah. in that deer stand at five in the morning thinking, where's this been my whole life? And then out, yeah. walks, out walks this buck. I'm getting it mounted now. Out walks this buck within the first hour. And I, I've since been told, don't expect this. <laughs> But within the first hour, this buck comes in a 70-yard shot. And, you know, in Illinois, you got to shoot with shotguns. You know, so you got rifle oh, shot, okay. shotguns. You can't shoot with rifles. So I shoot right. with like a 20-gauge deer rifle, or deer barrel. And I, I've mm-hmm. since got a 12-gauge deer barrel, Mossberg, 70 yards, nailed it. And uh, dropped it right there. I mean, it just didn't run at all. And it was, I mean, you shake. I had that, that deer fever or whatever they call it. And and I thought, this is the best thing. I processed it myself. I had a, another guy that's my, my really good buddy, taxidermist, uh, and he helped me process it. I grinded it up myself, made all the cuts, and I've been rabbit hunting since then. I'm going to do that again and just and keep it up. I want to hear about your history with hunt, hunting, hunting, and then I would love to make a pitch together about why, why I don't want to say should, but why would it be good for pastors who, who don't necessarily have a lot of hobbies? Why is it a good discipline to for guys to get into or consider getting into so tell us your history tell us Uh, your hunting history so i grew up in south arkansas a small town el dorado just north of the louisiana border 
Um, I am redneck to the core with about half hillbilly because <laughs> the other side of my family is from the uh, Ozark Mountains of Arkansas. So uh, it's deep in me. Uh, my grandfather, uh, his business, he was an independent oil producer. And so he had a lot of leased land that we got to hunt on. And from my earliest memories, my dad put me on a deer stand with a pellet gun and a vat of hot chocolate. Uh, he knew there was no threat of anything dying, uh, <laughs> but he could at least expose me and get me out of the house and probably give my mother some reprieve from the boys. Mm -hmm. So my brother and I, my dad would go deer hunting from that. I fell in love with it. I started with the shotgun uh, sitting on the deer stand in the woods of South Arkansas. Um, I, I've, I've loved it. Uh, from that, mm -hmm. I advanced to uh, uh, high-powered rifles and learning to shoot those. Uh, we squirrel hunted, we rabbit hunted, we deer hunted. If it moved, uh, we would shoot at it. High school and college, I went through a phase of significant addiction to duck hunting. Um, hmm. There is no drug that has its hold <laughs> on you like duck hunting. And my understanding uh, is turkey hunting is very similar. Hey, I'm going in uh, April, yeah, first time turkey hunting in April. Be careful, man. Um, <laughs> it's, its addiction is deep and powerful. But you know what? I think when you, when you get connected to nature like that, you, you get to the fundamentals of creation, of life. When you take the life of an animal, which I have absolutely no qualms over, um, but for the right reasons and with the right respect, mm -hmm. uh, when you uh, bleed that animal out and you have to skin it, you all of a sudden you have an appreciation for yeah. life and an understanding of it that you didn't have before. Mm -hmm. So I'm a big proponent of hunting. Uh, I'm a big proponent of guns. I'm a big proponent yeah. of the second amendment. Me I don't too. mean to get political. I'm just saying, I believe that the second amendment is the guardian of the first amendment. Mm -hmm. And when the second goes, we will lose the first very quickly after. So I live my life under the protection uh, and my livelihood as preaching. I won't stop if the second amendment goes away and the first amendment goes away, but I do know that I enjoy a freedom because of that. Yeah. Uh, but beyond that, I'll get away from that aspect beyond that, the smell of gunpowder and the blast of a gun and the kick of it uh, does something to remove stress from your life that nothing else can substitute for. Mm. Uh, it is a manly thing. And not only the gunpowder, but the bow and arrow, uh, the release yeah. of the bow, the learning. You know, there's just so much good in that for my own life. I'm not saying you have to do those things, uh, but I am um, I'm a bushcraft guy. I love to be out in the woods. I like sharp blades. I like big blasts. I like fast flying arrows. Um, <laughs> and those things to me have been therapy through the years. Uh, they have been just a source of, of enjoyment and retreat, and that's how I like to use them. And I, by God's grace, I've been able to bring other men into that and to share that with them. And, um, you know, we don't do uh, outdoor ministry at our church per se, but we have a fairly large group of guys that like to go out and hike and hunt and do things together. And I, I think that's a enjoyment. Yeah, uh, I'm a, I also ride bikes but my favorite form of bike riding is mountain biking because mm. I'm in the woods. Yeah. I love to be in the woods, man. That's, uh, so that's that good kind stuff. of gives you a really brief introduction. Yeah. So a couple thoughts as you're, as you're talking through that, number one, I did a episode on the second, second amendment on self-defense and uh, trying to clear up some things for, even for pastors. Cause I was doing a worldview series and what people understand is that the second amendment was not about hunting. It was not about procuring that's right. the ability to, to hunt. It was, 
to stop tyrannical governments, to be able to yes. defend ourselves with the latest technology, with the best of, of equipment, and not have a divide between what the government has and what we have. And yeah. so, so modern technology should be available for the local person. If they have the ability to buy it, right. they should be able to go out and purchase it, keep it at their home, keep it locked up. And so I, I loved hearing you say that. And um, so one of the things that I was uh, pleasantly surprised by when I shot that deer, you talked about the respect for the animal and appreciation for God and creation. Uh, and I've heard it explained this way. I'm, I'm actually going to be interviewing a professor from Baylor here later this week. And he wrote a book called God, Nimrod, and the World. And hmm. he is a leading scholar on the history of American sport hunting versus uh, hunting hmm. for just a livelihood. Really interesting guy. And look, you, you may like that. But one of the things that, we, that I'd heard him talk about is the difference between uh, – the hunter's appreciation for a particular species and the animal rights appreciation for the individual animal pain. And in the yeah. hunting culture that I've been a part of, I've really appreciated the fact that hunters care about a, a species and the overall conservation of lands, public lands, and mm -hmm. the health of a particular, a particular animal more than just an individual animal. So what's sustainable yeah. for the ecosystem and your particular environment? And what I've really appreciated is God has sovereignly used, from Teddy Roosevelt on, he has sovereignly used uh, really good restrictions and conservation to preserve hunting today. And yeah. if, if it wasn't for Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt, my, my dad said that, you know, he remembered when he was growing up just in the 60s that there were no deer. He, they didn't just see deer running right. around in southern Illinois. And now... I step out my yard. I've got three acres and I step out, by the way, I'm going to shoot one with a bow next year. I just got my bow for Christmas. And so I'm going to shoot one go. right, right in my property. And uh, <laughs> when you, when you uh, uh, think about, um, well, now I just lost my train of thought lane. Goodness. Um, but anyways, uh, to be able to We're just talking about the value of, of, of maintaining land yes. and reproduction of the harvest. Yes. And, and I, just getting into this, have been pleasantly surprised about just the care and how God has sovereignly used men like Teddy Roosevelt, state con yeah. conservation and federal conservation to preserve hunting that wouldn't be there yeah. if they didn't step up to care about not just the environment, but care about animals, the, the created yep. order. And I've, I've so appreciated that. Yeah, yeah, and I too. I mean, when I grew up in South Arkansas, there were no turkeys in South Arkansas. Wow. And 20 you know, 20 years ago, after I had been gone for a number of years, they started to repopulate. Hmm. And that's because of uh, good conservation efforts that reintroduced them and they flourished, you know. Yeah. So that you're exactly right about that. Yeah. And now I don't know at what stage I can officially call myself a hunter. I don't know if it's after you shoot your first deer or, or because I'm just, you know, six months into this thing. And, and yeah. I really, I feel like this is going to be a long-term deal. My sons are always, we're always watching the hunting public videos on YouTube and meat eater and Steven Ranella. I just got, I got all his stuff from meat eater and uh, it's just so much fun. What I've been encouraging guys to do is to pursue, you know, I, the only other thing I do is I run. So I get out and do physical activity. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a runner, been a runner for 12, 14 years, something like that. Um, but a lot of pastors, there are some that have too many hobbies that takes them away, but I, I find that to be rare, especially if they have yeah. children, you just don't have time for it. 
But this is something that I've discovered. I'm trying to encourage pastors to do because in the same way you're talking, it's, it's almost like a spiritual discipline where you're sitting, you're, you're providing space to spend time with God and his world. And with a Kyperian view of the world, this is God's, like this is God's earth. Right. Here. And there's something special about it. So it may give a pitch. Why, why should a young guy, I use the word should, consider, even if you didn't grow up hunting at all, pursuing, hunting, fishing, and just being outdoors. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this, and here's what it comes out of. About three or four years, I told you about three and a half years into the church plant, I had forsaken um, a lot of my hobbies and was mm-hmm. not participating in them. And honestly, I let my body go to waste. I, I had put wet on way too much weight and that came to full scale. And in 2012, I started pursuing a doctorate, uh, earned it in 2015. But through all of that, I had put on way too much weight. I had lost, I'm not an inactive person, but I had become inactive in my intentional uh, pursuit of health and, Mm. uh, you know, exercise. And part of that being hunting, I was forsaken. I wasn't getting in the woods. I would go with my son some, but only to carry him. It was not something I actively pursued. And man, the Lord just really convicted me uh, on a hiking trip in 2016. My son and I were going to do the uh, Maroon Bell Loop out of Vail, Colorado. Uh, it's a 27-mile loop. We were going to do it over uh, four day, five days and four nights. We were with three other men. And I got, uh, I got 10 miles in, and I couldn't go any further. I had to come out. And uh, man, the Lord just broke me right there on that mountain. Hmm. And uh, he used my son to do that. And so from that time, I came home, I dropped about 40 pounds, we started mountain biking again, and I just really renewed my passion for the things that I enjoyed being outdoors. Mm -hmm. I don't care if it's hunting, you know, I mean, I have a passion for that. I don't care if it's for outdoors or if, I mean, you know, the woods, or if it's just for exercise, you have to be extremely careful not to get into the self-made man uh, uh, being in top physique and eating absolutely perfect today. I mean, I think that's such an idol Mm. along with the whole self-care movement, but it doesn't mean that there's not a correct form of it. I think there's some young men doing it really well. I wish I had given myself to it earlier on. And I think you have to, you will not survive for the long haul if you don't take care of your body. Mm -hmm. I've known that. I just haven't always practiced that. So whatever you do, you need to do that. And honestly, uh, we'd need a lot less counselors if we'd spend a lot more time with the Lord in creation, hiking, yep. enjoying it. I do regular retreats where I hike. I take my journal. I just spend most of the day drinking coffee, eating lunch or, you know, eating a snack and sitting watching, overlooking the Buffalo River, overlooking the Ozark Mountain Ranges. So I think there's a lot to be said just for our emotional health and spiritual health that awaits us if we will dare to trust the Lord enough to Sabbath regularly Amen. Um, and, and get away with him. That's so good. All right. I got one, one last question. I'm going to set you up for just thanking okay. God for his grace. And so I'm going to set you up. Why Lane Harrison? Why do you love Jesus so much? Um, He's changed my life. Hmm. Uh, So he gave me everything and a family, every opportunity to know him from day one. And for years, 
I just threw all that back in his face. Mm-hmm. Uh, ran from him. Uh, hardened my heart to him. And uh, yet he didn't stop pursuing me. And so there's not a moment of my life that I don't live with the awareness that everything I have is from him. It's all him. None of me. I don't deserve it. Um, I could not have earned it. Uh, But far more than not being able to earn it, uh, I have uh, squandered it. And so living with that recognition is just a matter of, you know, and I surely don't do this perfect by any means, but from my family, my mom and dad, my brothers, my extended family, grandparents, uncles, all of them, to specifically my wife, my children, and my church now, uh, man, I have it so much better than I ought to. Um, How could I possibly uh, not love him and give him my life? You know, it's like 2 Corinthians 5 says, uh, we are convinced with a deep life-controlling conviction that one died for all, and therefore all all have died, and those who live, live for the one uh, who for them died. You know, Mm. we we are controlled, compelled by a love that is so powerful, and that's that's why. Amen. Amen. That's so good. Well, Lane, this has been a lot of fun. I think our listeners can enjoy hearing this conversation. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for the opportunity, Jared. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theshepherdscrook.co. For care and counsel, please call, text, or email to set up a session. You can follow The Shepherd's Crook on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please consider sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use. And let me encourage you to remember Jesus Christ.